Hello and welcome to the New Model Advisor podcast. I'm Charles Wormsley and today I will be talking to Schroeder's Fund Manager Tom Walker about property funds. Tom, I wanted to start by talking about ESG. How do you take uh, that kind of screening into account in a property fund and in your fund in your funds in particular? Yes, yeah, so I think that ESG is such an essential part of any investment process. I think that actually when we sort of take a step back and think about real estate as a sector, it's such a large contributor to greenhouse gas. You know, it's arguably over 40% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions comes from real estate. So actually, I don't really think it's been given the focus that maybe something like the energy sector has in terms of how negative it's been. So ESG is, is really a, a huge topic for us. What we're looking to do is we're looking to if you like, kind of reduce our investable universe by taking ESG uh, considerations um, into account. So one of the things we look at is we do an environmental assessment of all of the locations we are investing in, whether it's from physical risks such as earthquakes or storms or well-being risk to individuals from polluted air or polluted water. Uh, and that will reduce our investment universe by a large number of companies. We're also then going to be taking into considerations things like transport connectivity. There's a huge body of academic work which really supports the notion that the closer you are to transport connectivity, the better your chances are of social mobility so that's another factor and then we'll also look at a number of third-party data providers such as Gresby which is the global real estate sustainability benchmark which we regard as being really the best in class um, standard for real estate sustainability metrics and we have that feed that data feeding directly into our investment process so we're actually able to look at on a building by building basis whether a company is increasing or decreasing its energy use or its water use so there's some really powerful data sets out there that you can include. I was having quite an interesting conversation with an advisor the other day on on exactly this topic and how actually property funds almost in a way were one that some of the first to embrace um, the E in ESG, the environment side, because a lot of buildings actually saw a great utility in cutting their energy bills and cutting their water use because it saved them money. And as a result, they were already along those lines. But when it comes to the other two letters, um, the social and governance, I wondered how that kind of feeds into uh, your selection process um, and whether there is a sort of way of measuring those metrics yeah i think that um in our opinion i think the g the governance side has actually always been something that's been very easy to do it's been something yeah. that you know we, we've been looking at for a, you know a long period of time you know whether a board is you know diversified whether it's got a good mix of you know uh, expertise um and you know looking at management remuneration policies are they aligned with shareholders all of that we think is pretty straightforward so i think the g has actually always been quite an easy part of analysis but you're right the s has kind of always been a little bit harder but i think that you know going back to my points i just made on transport connectivity i think there is some really interesting academic work which is, is resulting in the s the social side of things becoming easier for investors like us and also we're seeing that the companies themselves are actually disclosing a lot more interesting data with regard to the impacts they're having on the local communities where they hold their assets so i think that of the e the s and the g i think you're right i think the s is probably one of the hardest ones to get really good information on but i think that is actually changing quite rapidly do you think you could give me an example of sort of the car holding in your uh, portfolios that kind of represents that s well you think yeah i think that um one of the the kind of the most powerful um 
uh, I suppose sort of social impacts we have in our portfolio would be something like social housing. So for instance, in Germany, we've got one of the largest owners of um, apartment buildings in Berlin. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but Germany has some of the lowest levels of home ownership uh, anywhere around the world. There's sort of a real culture of renting and social housing is a large part of that portfolio. So, you know, providing housing to sort of people who are, you know, are not able to afford as high rents as, you know, maybe other parts of various cities. I think that's kind of a, a pretty interesting uh, element to have in our portfolio. We also have sort of similar, um, uh, if you like, residential communities, sometimes for age, restricted by age, so aged care facilities over in the US. We have a number of retirement communities for 55 years and above. So I think, you know, generally speaking, the S is, is done very well in our portfolio when we think about the residential holdings that we have. And bearing in mind, you know, we're not investing in developers who are trying to build and sell and maximize profit. We're really looking for partnerships with companies that are providing shelter, providing residential accommodation to different age groups, be it millennials, aged care, or even just sort of any ages, you know, in the form of social housing. And then that provides us as the investment, as the investor, with a very resilient income stream. And that's really what we're looking for. Do you think um, European companies do that better than perhaps um, either in the UK or the US? Yeah, I think it's, it, it's, it's more sort of on a, um, a country by country basis, I think that there is, it's easier for us to find very good companies, for instance, in Germany with social housing. It's harder in sort of other parts of, um, of Europe, like the UK. And then over in the US, there is just a, it's just such a significant market. It's so large. And there we're able to access things, as I mentioned, like age restricted communities. So it becomes, you know, we can really kind of tick the box for, for almost any age group that we're looking to try and get exposure to. And when we're talking about these kind of metrics, uh, there's often a concern raised about greenwashing, uh, as it were, um, for when a company isn't doing what it says it is. Uh, how do you avoid that? And how do you make sure those metrics both are accurate, but also are the right metrics for what you need? Yeah, I, I think it's actually quite straightforward. I think the kind of the greenwashing issues um, have really sort of evaporated pretty rapidly once you start to factor in data everything for us in terms of our investment process, how we manage things, it's all driven by data. So we're looking at the company's data. We're not just listening to what the CEO says, who's trying to maybe sell us a good story. We actually are able to look at the data. We're able to look at those greenhouse gas emissions. We're able to look at the energy efficiency, the water usage on a year by year basis. And a lot of that data, as I mentioned earlier, comes from Gresby, which is the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. So it's being able to calibrate what management are telling you on the one hand with data to to ensure that you really can see exactly which companies are doing the right thing and which are the ones you should be avoiding. So when we're talking about this data, uh, how do you decide it's the right data, the right figures and the right things you're looking at? Yes, yeah, so I think one of the advantages of the Gresby platform that we subscribe to is that it was actually set up by the real estate industry for the real estate industry to use. And so it's a not-for-profit organization. It's set up by experts. And really, I think the genesis of it came because there were so many competing you know, data providers. Nobody knew what was right and what was wrong. But actually, you've just got a group of real estate specialists all together determining what the right path forward is for the companies and the type of data that, they, that the companies should be subscribed 
submitting to the platform and then what type of data that we as investors can use that is going to be useful um, and again when you when you look at the data that we're able to access you know the greenhouse gas emissions the water uh, efficiency or electricity you know, energy efficiency it is actually very clear what the key data points are and then being able to analyze that data on a year-by-year -year basis seeing whether it's increasing or decreasing whether the greenhouse gas emissions are increasing or decreasing that is very very powerful information one area that I think has sort of been the news recently is obviously the uh, the Grenfell inquiry is still ongoing. Has that changed anything in terms of governance within properties at the moment and attitudes towards issues um, around how they're run? Um, for the companies I look at, I wouldn't sort of really be looking at that event and saying that's mm. changed how how things have, have um, occurred in the market. I think that was very specific to kind of the construction of one residential unit. You mm. know, really what, what we're looking at in terms of the assets that we have, we've got student housing, data centers, self-storage, office buildings, um, you know, logistics, and, and all of the companies that we're investing in, we regard as really being the leaders in their respective field. And when it comes to items like construction and the safety of those assets, you know, their long-term track records really demonstrate that they are sort of, you know, the best in class at what they do. So we, you know, we haven't experienced and nor do we expect to experience anything like the issues that were seen at the Grenfell Tower. Um, so again, that comes down to, I think, the due diligence on the, the people that you are investing alongside and the people that you're giving your capital to. Does it ever involve looking at the materials used as well? Um, and that maybe leads to a wider question on the supply chain when it comes to sustainable and environmental um, metrics. Yeah, in terms of, you know, do, do I sort of get into the detail of the, you know, um, construction materials and the um, uh, the methods that they're using, you know, maybe very superficially, but really what we rely on is the building standards that the developments or the assets will be sort of marked against. And so there's a series of, you know, professional organizations which will then support when a company develops an asset or they own an asset, sort of, you know, whether it meets the sufficient uh, or the required fire safety guidance or whatever it might be. And so that's really what we rely on. Um, and as I say, you know, our companies have all got long-term track records and very experienced in this field and are often actually sort of driving the evolution and the advancement in these respective fields. So it's something that, you know, we feel very confident relying on third party um, uh, certifications for in this field, because it is quite complicated. Yeah, of course. Um, and it's something you <laughs> go into the detail, I can imagine, takes months, years. Um, I wondered if uh, we've already obviously touched upon some of the social housing um, in Germany in the portfolio, but um, I wondered if you could maybe explain another company or two that um, you've invested in that you feel quite nicely meets these uh, ESG screening and why it does that. Yeah, exactly. So um, there was a company that I had a call with uh, yesterday afternoon called Rexford. So they own logistics assets. So if you think about, you know, everything that's being sort of delivered to our houses at the moment and they you know get delivered to a, a distribution warehouse and then they'll go from there and end up at our house. This company owns, if you like, that last mile distribution warehouse in Los mm. Angeles. And one of the interesting things about this company is that they focus, you know, as close to the center of Los Angeles as they can. So they're in what's called infill locations now one of the reasons why we really like this company and uh, is because the the types of assets that they own they are not brand new developments now one of the 
biggest issues or the biggest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions in real estate is embodied carbon. And yeah. you think about the quantum of embodied carbon, the main kind of uh, offenders, if you like, in construction are steel and concrete. So if you're going to invest in a developer that's putting up shiny new buildings, the embodied carbon in those new developments is very, very significant. So what we prefer is we prefer these companies that operate in the infill locations. So they will be buying an existing building, they will be repurposing it retrofitting it which means that they're not you know having to use new steel or new concrete to get that asset up and running and, and make it efficient so that's sort of on, on the one part of this company that we like another part of the, the company that we really like is the fact that because they are owning assets in sort of and around cities the if you like the sort of the the um the truck driving distance from their distribution warehouse to the customer is a lot shorter. So what they've been talking to us about is that they believe that their portfolio results in about eight miles per trip in terms of reduction for all of the distribution, all the goods that are distributed from their warehouses. And that's nearly 23 million miles on an annual basis. And when they look at that over a 25 year period, they ascribe a value of about $800 million on a net present value in terms of saved, you know, diesel or, you know, kind of contribution to negative contribution to the environment. So I think factors like that are really, really important in just understanding the contribution that specific investments can make, as opposed to investing in a company that owns similar assets, but their distribution warehouses are out in the countryside, further away from where that point of consumption is and might be brand new buildings. So it's that repurposing of assets in a city center, which we really sort of think produces a lot of benefit on the, the ESG side of things. And then if you can overlay that kind of a company with one that has, you know, an independent board, diversified skill set, et cetera, then, and, and an aligned management team, then we think you have a really powerful combination. And that's a really interesting point. Um, I know one wondered, has the pandemic sort of uh, influenced or changed that point on the, um, the, the distribution warehouses and things like that? Because I remember at the uh, time it, lockdown started there was a lot of talk about how we have these just-in-time supply chains and there wasn't enough warehouse space do you think that's the pandemic's going to change that around the world um particularly um you know, in the uk i guess yeah i mean i think that's going to really sort of one of the key drivers for this subsector and one of the reasons why we like it a lot is that we think it's probably actually moving from just in time and companies now want just in case so they want to be prepared mm. for sort of a hiccup and that is going to lead to an increase of demand for spaces in warehouses similarly as you sort of reduce the need for physical stores and a retailer maybe closes a store and is going to have their goods in a distribution warehouse they actually need about three or four times more space to store all of their goods as opposed to the ones that you just see in a physical store so we think that there's a number of demand drivers and then you start factoring in changes in supply chains bringing it more kind of you know to your domestic country as opposed to relying on international distribution chains and we see a very strong outlook for the logistics space does Brexit also have a possibility uh, for changing that? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think it, it complicates things quite how it's going to work out. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there, there is sort of definitely kind of more of a, you know, an argument for onshoring when you look at an event like Brexit. Um, so, yeah. Um, and obviously we talked a bit about there the uh, distribution space. Uh, what other changes has have been brought upon this by the pandemic this year and how have you sort of positioned the fund as a result? 
Yeah, I think that one of the kind of most interesting kind of uh, comments that I read about COVID-19, and it was kind of referring to previous crises that have occurred, um, you know, over many centuries, you know, going back to the Great Fire of London, outbreaks of cholera or tuberculosis, it was sort of talking about all these events as, as effectively just hastening and magnifying the inev inevitable trend that was going to take place. So you thought about, you know, with the Great Fire of London, it was the advent of uh, fireproof bricks, which then kind of became kind of a global industry with cholera it was the um, you know development of sanitization and modern sewers and I think with COVID-19 it is no different in that all that we're seeing is an acceleration of trends that were already in the market you know e-commerce you know us buying things online and, and the demand for distribution warehouses it's not new this trend has been you know rapidly increasing for many years what we think has happened, and again, this is kind of quotes from some of the companies that we have in our portfolio, they think that we've seen an increase for, in terms of about four years worth of the trend occurring in about four months. So, you know, the, the type of the quantum of retail sales that are being made online now today is what they would have expected in a normal environment in about four years time. So that demand for e-commerce, you know, all of us are now far more comfortable ordering groceries online in addition to kind of maybe other items. So that has been obviously a, a, a significant increase. And then the other major change is working from home. Again, working from home was not new. You know, we here at Schroeder's moved into a new building about two years ago. As soon as we moved in here, we were told that there are only desks for about 70% of the workforce. We were encouraged to work from home. So it's not a new trend. Again, all that's happened is that COVID-19 has magnified and accelerated that trend. And we're now going to see a far more rapid adoption of it and therefore reduction in office demand as well. And I think that that is one of the most meaningful changes that we're going to see as a result of COVID-19, bearing in mind when I started my career in real estate the two building blocks of any diversified real estate portfolio was number one retail and number two offices and here we've got a situation where both of those subsectors are dramatically impacted and arguably will never be the same again so you know we really are looking at maximizing our exposure to those alternative subsectors making sure that we don't have a high exposure to retail and office and pleasingly we haven't for a long period of time over the last six and a half years i've been running the fund with hugo machin we've been reducing dramatically our exposure to retail and office so today we've only got about two percent in retail and we've got about ten percent in, in offices around the world well it was taking a look it did seem you had invested in uh was it kendix op office investment corp this year um is that correct and could you explain why that office you know investment seems like a better idea than perhaps others at the moment yeah, it, it's a great example, actually, that one. So that is a, a company that has, you know, offices in Tokyo. Uh, and when we look around the world, I just said we've got about 10% invested in offices globally. The single city, which is the largest component of that 10%, is Tokyo at about 3%. Mm. The next largest city is Oslo and then Stockholm. Now, what's interesting here is that we have zero exposure to London, zero exposure to New York. Now, those are two of the cities which have seen the, the working from home trend adopted and taken up in the most aggressive fashion. One of the things we like about Tokyo is that culturally, actually, we think that if you can call it like presenteeism, that culture of needing to be in the office is so much greater than in other parts of the world. And we think that that will persist. We also just really like the size of the Tokyo market. So there's a population there of about 36 million people, you know, one of the sort of largest cities in the world. And the economy in Tokyo is absolutely, you know, 
extraordinarily large. And so that demand, that innovation that occurs in that city, we think means that you're going to continue to see quite consistent demand for offices. One of the other important things to, to think about is just the, the valuation. We find the valuation of these opportunities in Tokyo a lot more attractive than we have done in a London or a New York, which is the reason why we've got Tokyo as one of the, the largest kind of office investments, if you like, in our fund. Evaluation is still quite high then for property um, you know, offices in London. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's one person's view against the other. We yeah. think that the valuation of offices today in cities like London, in cities like New York, because of the kind of acceleration of working from home, because of the lack of pricing power, because in addition to working from home, you've got a lot of flexible office space providers like WeWork, Notel, Industrious, all giving employers choice. Do they want to sign a nice 10 year lease or do they just want to sign a lease for 24 hours a day and just kind of expand it or contract it as they see fit? All of this we think will reduce that pricing power for an office landlord. And, and we've got quite pessimistic assumptions in our financial models, which leads us to conclude that yes, we think offices are overpriced in markets like London and New York, which is one of the reasons why we have no exposure there. We much prefer alternative subsectors in those cities like apartments, like self-storage, or maybe even student housing. We really like subsectors where it's very hard to replicate the portfolio. And when you have something like a self-storage unit in a city like London or New York, it's a very very rare asset to have because the highest and best use of that piece of land is often not self-storage it might be something else mm. so that means you're never going to have large levels of supply of those types of assets in particular cities and that gives us great resilience for our portfolio um, and so what other areas are you looking in as well this year i noticed again some of your holdings seem to be focused a lot on data centers and areas like that is that a big opportunity for property at the moment yeah, I think it is. I think it's a, an absolutely massive opportunity. You know, we've been investing in, you know, what we call digital infrastructure, their mission critical assets. You think of the pandemic and you think of how important data centers have been for all of our survival, keeping in touch with colleagues. You think about governments and their classification of key workers or some of those key workers were the people that operate and maintain these data centers. That is how important they are to, to all of us, whether it's a individual, family, business or, or governments. So I, I think data centers you know they are an essential part of the digital economy and that's really what we've been looking to try and maximize our exposure to the digital economy is really what is powering things in today's modern economy so things like macro towers which is where your you know the signals where your mobile phone goes through data centers fiber optic cable we see very very strong demand for them for very very obvious reasons you know with the rollout of 5g the internet of things this creation of data is just increasing at an exponential rate and the digital infrastructure that, that we have is going to continue to be in huge demand which will give the owners of that digital infrastructure pricing power so that's why we much prefer something like a data center than your traditional office or shopping center we think the return dynamics are very different and how do you manage that then when you sort of balance it against the environmental targets because obviously these data centers use a lot of energy um, do you have to sort of think about where the energy comes from in areas like that 
Yeah, it, it's a, it's a you know it's a really important area that we focus in a lot on, and I think that data centers and cities are, are, are similar in that some people, when they think about cities, they think about cities as being you know dramatic polluters. They are contributing to you know the the, the warming of the planet, but actually, people who live in a city have a smaller carbon footprint than someone who lives in rural areas because they probably take mass transit to work, or maybe they do you know ride sharing, or they live in an apartment rather than a house which uses less energy. So that the headline betrays the truth about cities. So we think cities will be instrumental in helping us achieve climate targets. And we think governments will be encouraging urbanization. And it's just the same with data centers. So the headline makes you believe that data centers consume a lot of power. Now, what the what they absolutely miss in that headline is the fact that if you as a corporation or as individual have your server in a data center, which is professionally managed and run, you will actually be using less power than if your, if your server was in your corporation's basement on 24 hours a day, you know, not using kind of artificial intelligence to control the air conditioning. And so again, what data centers are doing is they've actually managed to keep their energy consumption completely static for about a 10, 15 year period, while the workloads on those data centers has been increasing dramatically. And that's quite a powerful kind of uh, contribution to actually reducing the carbon footprint of the people who are using these data centers. That's um, makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's actually something I hadn't really thought about the sort of use of uh, energy within the data centers. Um, one thing you mentioned on the cities as well is you know, they are part of the solution towards a sustainable future. I wondered if you have many opportunities to invest in things like public transport and infrastructure um, within your funds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we take a very holistic view to sort of a city and, and really anything in our opinion that facilitates the growth of a city in a sustainable way, we want to invest in it. So in our portfolio, we've got some toll roads, we've got data centers, we've got hospitals, we've got a lot of mission critical infrastructure that contributes to how a city functions. So absolutely, you know, we are very interested in, in all of the assets that uh, a city needs to function. Just to slightly move on from um talking about the ESG side I wondered another effect of the pandemic has been this kind of um once again some property funds having to suspend their withdrawals um, and it, it has created a little bit of, sort of uh, uncertainty uh, among advisors and some clients about investing in property um I wondered whether you could just give me a short you know an overview of where we're at at the moment with those kind of with, with property funds in general yeah, I, I think there's, it, this is just such a kind of a, a big problem, a big issue. It's been going on for such a long period of time. And I think that sadly, in my opinion, it shows that kind of we as the UK are quite far behind other parts of the world. So firstly, REITs were invented in the 1960s and 1970s in uh, America, in Australia and in Holland as a result of daily dealt bricks and mortar funds going into suspension and those countries saying right we're going to ban those funds we don't want them again but we want a vehicle that can give investors a liquid exposure to real estate markets hence the birth of REITs. Um, we in the UK didn't in introduce REITs till 2008 uh, and so culturally I find that you know it's we're not quite as accepting as REITs as other parts of the world are. 
a, a real estate investment trust, a REIT, is the perfect vehicle to give people a liquid exposure to, to real estate. So I think that's the first point. I think one of the other interesting points is that what a lot of investors and advisors in the U UK tend to do is they tend to think about real estate as being a UK-only investment opportunity. So they say, oh, I want to go underweight UK real estate because of Brexit or because the economy is looking weak, a view with which I have total sympathy for. But the point that they're missing is that actually they can own real estate in Boston, in the heart of the biotech world. They can own real estate in Shenzhen, right in the tech capital of Asia, and achieve very, very strong returns. And, and it's just that kind of mindset that along with their equities and fixed income, which they diversify globally, for some reason, real estate seems to be just be seen as a domestic uh, opportunity only. When actually investing in you know the strongest cities around the world, you're able to access really really particular niches and subsectors which have incredibly strong you know growth characteristics for them. So again, I just think that you know in a few years we probably won't be having this conversation. I don't know whether daily dealt bricks and mortar funds will be around in another few years, but I think that the fact is that they've been suspended on so many occasions really sort of tells you that there are some problems there and that people need to consider other opportunities to access this market. <laughs>